The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go Beyond Reality. Good evening, good morning, and welcome. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Great show for you tonight. We've got a couple of guests And that means a couple of different topics. In the first hour of the show tonight, we'll be talking to Cassandra Snow. Now, Cassandra is a guest. Well, she was rescheduled. We had her uh, slated for, I don't know, last week, the week before. Maybe it was two weeks ago. And uh, we had to make a last-minute schedule change. And we've moved her to tonight. And she is a tarot card reader, uh, also a teacher and a writer. And we're going to be talking about all of that, plus her new book, which is called Queering the Tarot. Her website is Cassandra-Snow.com, and we'll be bringing her in in the first hour of the show. And then in the second hour of the program, Chris James, author, paranormal researcher, will be on to discuss cases from his new book called Laredo Paranormal Research Society. That happens to be the name of his paranormal group as well. And uh, he's got a whole bunch of experiences he's going to share with us, mostly ghost stuff, but some other stuff as well. So that'll be the second hour of tonight's program. Uh, Friday night, tomorrow night, of course, is a best of, as every Friday night is. And then Monday of next week, Claire Waters will be our guest to talk about her book called Raising Faith. Now, Claire is an author and a holistic wellness coach, but she also is the mother of two psychic children. Those children, Faith and Tom, um, had abilities all their lives, and uh, Claire wrote a book about how the experiences of raising children that are psychic Again, that book is called Raising Faith, and we'll talk with Claire about that Monday night. A lot of great stuff coming up later in the week as well. Um, make sure you visit Scaricon.com. That event is uh, eight, nine days away, six days, something. It's, very, it's right around the corner. So if you uh, enjoy a, a great time with celebrities and, and films and panel discussions and parties and great vendors, and you're anywhere near Framingham, Massachusetts, which happens to be near Boston, Massachusetts, uh, go to Scaricon.com and check out the weekend. Right now, admission is discounted, but it won't remain discounted for much longer. Admission will be available at the door, but at full price. Scaricon.com is the website. The event is June 7th through the 9th in Framingham, Massachusetts. It's a weekend you do not want to miss. And then while you're on the internet, you may as well swing over to YouTube if you uh, don't know about our YouTube stream, you just have to go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson, and you'll find that we stream this show live there, but there's also an archive of programs for your enjoyment and some special bonus content as well. And finally, I'll encourage you to stop by my Facebook page, J.V. Johnson on Facebook, and give it a like. Let's grow those numbers. Uh, but thank you for being here. Let's go right to break so we can come back and bring our first guest, Cassandra Snow is uh, opening up the program with us. It's Beyond Reality Radio. I'm your host, JV. Really excited to be here tonight, and uh, we'll be right back. Hey, it's JV here. You know I've asked for your support in the past, and I'm going to do it again because it's really, really important. And there are a couple of ways you can support the show, and it's so inexpensive. Now, you can go to Patreon, and you can become a Patreon supporter, and we really, really encourage that. But there's also another way. If you look at the description of the podcast, if you're a podcast listener, and you scroll down to the bottom, there's a way to support the show directly through the podcast app. And it's only 99 cents a month. It's less than a buck. You probably have that change in your couch right now. That dollar a month 
month, less than a dollar, goes a long way in helping us produce this program, provide great interviews for you during the course of the week. I thank you in advance because the support is so important to the program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I need to recharge or something. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Uh, I'm JV. Thanks for being here. Um, great show, like I said, lined up. A little bit later in the program, we have, uh, we're going to be talking to Chris James. Chris is an author and a paranormal researcher. He's got a book called Laredo Paranormal Research Society. That's also the name of his group. He's going to be talking about some of his strangest and most um, interesting paranormal cases, things that he's uh investigated himself so we'll be talking about that in the second hour of the program we'll also be taking your phone calls at 844-687-7669 the first hour of the show however we've got cassandra snow with us cassandra is a tarot card reader a teacher and a writer and her, her new book is called queering the tarot and her website is cassandra-snow.com cassandra welcome to beyond reality radio great to have you here thank you so much for having me i'm excited me too. And I know that we had you scheduled before and we had to move things around a little bit. I don't remember exactly why, but it's about time we had you on <laughs> and we're happy to have this conversation tonight. First thing uh, I'd like to know is how long have you been uh, interested in and uh, reading tarot cards? I've always been interested in everything that leans, you know, occult, divination, paganism, Um I started reading officially when I was 18, which is about um, a decade and a half ago. And then I started reading professionally um, about a decade ago, and I started teaching and writing about tarot about three or four years ago. What happens during the course of those years that makes you go from somebody who, I guess I'll just use the word as an amateur, to someone who actually can do it as a profession? Is, is it just, do you get more energy from the readings? Do you connect better? Uh, do you better understand what the cards mean? How does that work? I think, so for me personally, I wanted to be really knowledgeable. I always felt called to do this for other people. But I wanted to be really, really knowledgeable about what I was doing. So it was a lot of self-teaching, but it was a lot of studying, a lot of books, a lot of reading. Um, even as an amateur, I was reading for other people or for just tips a lot of the time just to get some of that practice in. Um, and then there were just some shifts in my professional life. I was in arts admin, and it just wasn't working out anymore. And so it sort of was some life stuff as well as some of that deeper tarot knowledge that kind of lined up to push me so in this direction. As you, as, the, as you do it more, as more time goes by and you get more experience reading tarot, do the messages change? Does the, does the energy change? Is, is, some, is something different, or are you just better at it, more in tune with what the cards are telling you? I think it's all of those things. And I think um, the longer, you know, I have a lot of clients who have been regular since the beginning. So for, you know, going on a decade now. Um, and even though I obviously can cold read for strangers really well, too, I think a lot happens in those ongoing connections with people. I think your energy syncs up really 
phenomenally with them the more you see them and the longer you see them. But I think those really in tune, really deep readings with people you know really well, I think that kind of colors and changes and helps you evolve as a reader overall as well. You see things that you wouldn't have seen in the cards otherwise, or you pick up messages in a new way. Um, and so, and on top of that, it's everything you said. It, it does shift the longer you do it. Your mind changes about what the message of a card might mean. But I think what changes the most for me as, you know, everything in our world changes, technology, the way we look at relationships, all these great conversations we have societally. And I think the interpretation of the cards needs to stack up with those changes, too. You don't want to read the same way today that you would have 15 years ago because the world is so wildly different. When you're doing a reading for someone, let's say you've got uh, client A and client B, and you do a reading for client A, and then you do a reading for client B, and the exact same cards come up in the exact same order. Does it mean the same thing, or does how it connects to that individual person have something to do with it? I think how it connects to the individual person does have a lot to do with it. I think, you know, certainly if they asked different questions, that's going to be a difference. But I think um, I, I and a lot of other readers look at tarot as a conversation, and so... If that were to happen, probably the first thing I would ask person B is, well, what do you see or what do you notice? Because those things are going to be more important. Um, so like looking at symbolism and maybe symbolism they pick up that the other person didn't. Um, however, if I'm reading for a couple or two sisters or two very close friends, it could be that their lives really are running very parallel. So it's not like it completely changes. And it's not uncommon for those energies to be affecting multiple people at once. So where does the energy... Um, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I didn't mean to interrupt, though. But where does the energy come from? Um, I think it comes from... mm, That's probably going to be different depending on what reader you're asking. I do. I've always felt uh, that I had some psychic energy or some really strong intuition or whatever you want to call it. When I was young, my mom would, like, ask me for advice on stuff because I would just know if things were going to work out or not in ways that, like, an 8-year-old shouldn't necessarily know. And I was usually right. Um, So I think some of it does come from that. I think some of it does come from the cards themselves. Finding a deck you really connect with, you really connect to the art and the artist, that draws energy in and of itself. But I think the other piece of it is, A lot of times when people come in for a reading, they sit down and they say, okay, so a lot of this I knew, I just needed to really hear and see it from someone else. And so a lot of times the energy comes from the client or the person who you're reading for, and it's about helping them tune into their own intuition. Most people can't afford to have a reading every day, so my goal is usually to get them kind of synced up so they can feel more empowered and autonomous moving forward. What about the spirituality of a client, of a person you're doing a reading for? Does it matter? Is, it, it, do different spiritualities yield different results? And, and does the spirituality uh, help guide the cards? Oh, I definitely think so. I'm very pagan, and I, when I'm just reading myself, I definitely get a lot of messages from 
those deities that I work with or people I love who have passed on or something like that. But I have clients from all walks of life and all different spiritualities. Um, and I learned early on that I wanted to be someone who was a very inclusive reader in a lot of different ways. And so I kind of did some self-teaching and some self-study about, okay, but how would I take this if I was a Christian? How would I take this if I was Muslim? And I just kind of, you know, stacked up the cards with some of those other belief systems. And so um, it definitely does have an effect. I think having a reader who has either done that work or comes from a similar faith as you is actually pretty important to getting sort of the best results for you. So you think it helps if the reader is of the same faith as the client? I think it does help, or like I said, a reader who has like studied and done their homework. And is it possible for anyone to pick up a deck of tarot cards and read them? I think so. I think it's definitely a skill that can be taught intellectually and psychologically. And I think anyone of any faith can learn it from a spiritual point of view or using their own spiritual gifts as well. I kind of liken it to music. If you start taking voice lessons and you take them for years and years, at some point you're going to have a decent voice. Some of us will still never be in an opera or on Broadway. And so that's sort of how I align it is, Anyone can do it, but I think there are definitely people who are, like, meant to do it and really meant to get there. You know, it's it's interesting because you use that music analogy, and, you know, we have psychics on the program as well, and they frequently use that analogy as well, that everybody has a, has the ability to learn it to a degree. Some people just have a more, uh, a stronger innate sense or innate capability to master it. Right. Absolutely. Um, so... Do you have a definition of a good or a bad reading uh, for somebody? I mean, can they be mixed? How does that work? I think it can. I do sort of have. It can definitely be mixed. Um, So I think for a client, what I think makes for a good reading is, A, the basics. Like, it's obviously got to be accurate or you're not going to take anything else that I say seriously, nor should you, because that means we don't have a connection or, you know, whatever. Um, but I think for me, a good reading is when a client walks away feeling like they have, they have the information that they need for their life right now and moving forward and that they have enough action steps or things they can think about and work through, um, to sort of take power back in their own hands and kind of change their own life or if they don't need to change it, just kind of keep moving it and pushing it forward. How long would you say... Uh, it, it takes for the cards to accurately um, offer some kind of guidance. Is that an hour process or is that, I mean, does it take weeks over time? How, how, how does that work? Uh, so I've been reading for a really long time um, and I connect really well with decks specifically. Uh, so for me, it can happen. I don't want to say instantly because you still need to go through and get to know it a little bit. But once I know the deck, it happens ideally within seconds, sometimes within a couple of minutes with a client. Um, if I'm reading for myself, though, I do sometimes have to actually, you know, we can't be as unbiased with ourselves. We want the outcome we want, and even really seasoned readers have trouble getting away from that when they're reading for themselves. So for myself, I usually will, like, 
take pictures or write a few notes or just kind of think on it for several weeks. And that's when it sort of starts becoming more clear. Do each of the cards have a specific meaning or does the meaning um, ebb and flow or evolve depending on the card before, the card after, and the person you're doing the reading for? So I think that the cards do have specific interpretations, but each card has a lot of them. And so what ebbs and changes and flows is like, well, what's the most prominent message or symbol of this card? Um, Like that's the piece I think sort of shifts. We're talking with Cassandra Snow. Uh, Cassandra is a tarot card reader, a teacher, and a writer. Uh, Her website is cassandra-snow.com. We're going to be talking about her book in the uh, second part of our discussion after the break. That's called Queering the Tarot. Um, Cassandra, you're a teacher. Does that mean you teach other people how to read tarot cards? Yes, I'm specifically a tarot and very occasionally witchcraft teacher. Um, most of my classes are geared at learning tarot. I have sort of a tarot 101 that I do where I teach a lot of methods for you to kind of learn your deck on your own. The class is more about how to learn tarot. And people who have trouble going into a class and memorizing information do a lot better with that. And then I also have some classes that focus on specific uh, facets of tarot that there's just not a lot of literature about. So I have a queering the tarot class for people who want to read inclusively for LGBTQ plus people. And I have a sex and tarot, which is sort of helping hopefully help moving the tarot culture to a sex positive uh, format. Um, and then I have like tarot for spirituality where I talk about some of the stuff we talked about earlier, like how to read Um, for different spiritualities, but also how to use it in your own spiritual path and how to use it um, for more than divination. All right, we're going to go to break now. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Cassandra Snow, and we're going to talk about her book. It's called Queering the Tarot. Uh, We've got a lot more ahead. The phone lines will be open if you have a question at 844-687-7669. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Did you know that online retailers like Amazon have constant deals that can save you money on the things you buy every day? It's no joke. Save 40%, 50%, even 80% on great products, and all you have to do is know about them. Noodle Shark is the way to be alert when something good is coming your way. Noodle Shark is the social media page that lists great deals that not only save you money, but give you the deals before anyone else has them. All you have to do is find Noodle Shark on Facebook. Search it as The Noodle Shark. That's The Noodle Shark because you deserve to save too. Become a shark and save. If you haven't found our YouTube channel, you need to go to YouTube and search JV Johnson. Subscribe to it. Click the uh, bell icon, which gives you notifications. It'll let you know when we stream live and when we upload new videos. There's an archive of programs there, plus some special bonus material. It's all at JV Johnson on YouTube. Tonight, in our first hour, we're talking with Cassandra Snow. She is a tarot card reader, a teacher, and a writer. Her website is Cassandra-Snow.com, and her book is called Queering the Tarot. Cassandra, tell us what the book is about. Yeah, so I wrote this tarot book to be really good for both beginners and more intermediate or advanced readers. Um, And I wrote it because as a queer person myself, even though I have always loved and connected to the tarot, I felt like there was some disconnect between maybe what a standard interpretation of a card would be versus how, you know, what it meant for me in my life and when it showed up. And I didn't think that was knowledge that I should just, like, hang on to. So I started writing an article series 
And that got picked up by a few different outlets. And it eventually got picked up by my publisher, Wiser Red Wheel. Um, and the book kind of goes through card by card, getting some of those alternative interpretations. Um, and I worked very hard to come up with those interpretations or sort of discuss them and sort of deconstruct the tarot while also, I think, staying true to the heart of a deck or the heart of a tarot deck. Um, you can learn tarot with just this book or you can read it alongside with other ones. Um, and I teach, I mentioned earlier, I teach a little bit differently when I teach 101. I sort of teach people how to look for the narratives and the arcs and the tarot themselves. And you see some of that in the book as well. So I think for anyone, um, regardless of your sexual or gender identity, it's a good book to get some different perspective on how you can learn or connect with tarot cards. Uh, we have some uh, callers waiting on hold. We're going to get to those calls in just a moment um, with questions, but I want to clarify what we're talking about here. Does your book offer a unique perspective on what the cards say and how they read uh, based on someone's sexuality? Um, uh, I would say sexual, sexual or gender identity, as well as, um, like, the experiences therein. So, like, the experience of being in the closet or the experience of some of the things that are common in our community um, that you, like I said, wouldn't necessarily just be able to pick up a, a deck and see if you weren't looking for it. So based on, and I, th- I guess that kind of connects to what we were talking about before, based on a person's in- individuality, the cards could mean something slightly different or entirely different based on that individuality. So is that kind of the same thing here? This is just, but this is uh, gender identity or sexual identity uh, focused. Yeah, no, I think you summed that up pretty good. Okay. All right. Let's jump to our <laughs> phone lines and grab a question here from Jasmine. Jasmine's in Boston. Hey, Jasmine, welcome to the show. JV. Hi, Ryan. Um, Cassandra, I'm so glad that you're on this show because um, I had a question um, regarding um, reading for people that are LGBTIQ. Um, I read this one book by Laura Clarson, and she uses um, a page with a queen to indicate, like, a gay male or a page and a king for, like, an older, like, lesbian woman or something like that. And I was wondering if you use the page in conjunction with, like, another court card for um, the various types of, you know, gender um, types. I specifically don't. I would, I at least not card pairings like that. I will say um, I myself am non-binary and, you know, with the king and the queen, we have sort of some typical masculine and feminine energy there. So I usually use the knights or the pages to represent non-binary identities. Um, But I think in terms of the difference between what she's doing and what um, you know, maybe the way I or someone else who writes about it might write about it. Um, tarot is very personal. It can be very individualized. And so I think the best way to figure out what works for you is to read a few different things and then do some experimenting just to see what works best for you with your deck. Oh, okay. Um, I was wondering, are some decks better 
in terms of like, uh, well, braid or weight is kind of so generic. But I was wondering, is there a deck that's, let's say, not typical, like not like the Rider Weight or the Vers- uh, the Versailles Marseille deck or whatever um, that you tend to use that you feel better, I don't know, the energy is more geared to that? I do. Um, I have several by queer creators, and so I think, that's definitely something to look for if you're wanting to have a more authentic experience for a marginalized person, whether it's an LGBTQ plus person or whether it's, you know, a POC or someone who is both. You want to look for a deck made by someone that fits into that identity as well. For me, the mo- the ones I use most often that are still in print, um, I, some of the ones I use, unfortunately, are really hard to get a hold of now. Um, but they, a lot of them are independent decks. So most of them are made by, you know, two or three tarot makers, but there's a really strong sort of resurgence of independent decks right now. That is absolutely amazing. Um, the ones that I use that are independent most often, there's one called the numinous tarot, um, by an online friend of mine who lives in Seattle. Um, and that one uh, is really inclusive in a lot of different ways, but comes from a very genderqueer perspective. I also use Christy C. Road, who's an amazing, like, punk musician and artist, uh, but also made this incredible tarot deck called the Next World Tarot that's sort of post-apocalyptic, and I don't know, it's just really cool. Those you can both still get. Um, Christy C. Road, who did the Next World Tarot, is also a person of color, because I know a lot of times people will ask me about decks for that. Um, In terms of mainstream decks, ones I think you could just walk in somewhere and buy. Um, The Modern Spellcasters Tarot does a pretty good job. Um, There's definitely some same-sex relationships in there. Um, And then the one that illustrates my book is not out quite yet. It's called the Urban Tarot, and it's coming out from, I believe, U.S. Games. Um, I could be wrong about that, but Um, It's called the Urban Tarot, um, and it takes the idea that not only are those decks you mentioned a little generic and a little outdated, uh, they also are best suited to people who, like, live in more rural areas or something like that, and this was really created from, like, well, how do we do magic and tarot, like, in the city and sort of reflecting that. So that one's really cool, too. Jasmine, thank you so much for the great questions and the call from Boston. We appreciate appreciate you listening. Um, forgive me, uh, Cassandra, if this is a bit of a naive question, but is there something inherently uh, biased or discriminatory about the cards themselves? Is that is that something you address there, too? It's definitely something I address in my book. And I think when I started reading, I had a lot of blind spots. Um, you know, I was a white person growing up in the South in the closet. When I went into the world and I didn't live there anymore, uh, and I was out, I did start running into some stumbling blocks in the tarot. Um, for those who don't know anything that are listening, um, it's created on a sort of a system or a framework. So it's a little bit different than like an Oracle deck, which is just completely created by the person who made it. Um, So there's four suits, and they run ace through ten, and then page, knight, queen, king. 
And that court system, I think, is a little bit inherently, it's certainly binary. It certainly leaves out people who aren't, you know, cisgender, male or female. Um, Certainly the decks that were brought up on that call are very white as well. And I think representation is so important. So I think it can just be very isolating for someone to be in what should be this sort of intimate connection, but not actually seeing themselves represented in the cards. Um, And so I think those are the two big things for queer people, that court system, as well as a few other cards, pose a little bit of a problem. And then, like I said, for POC, they're just, that representation in art just wasn't there when they started mass producing tarot decks. But it is there now, and I'm very glad for that. There's a lot of really beautiful decks that are primarily POC or that are made by queer people or something like that. What are some of the tips you have, whether we're talking about uh, someone who would gravitate toward uh, the the deck you just described or maybe a more traditional deck? What are some of the tips you have for somebody who's just beginning to read for themselves? Uh, about deck selection, you mean? Or? Well, I would say start with deck selection and then in, in practice and, and, and actually doing the readings. Yeah, the, good. Those are both great questions. For deck selection, this is sometimes really difficult. Uh, if you can find a store that has deck demos, um, I would honestly go there and like rifle through some decks and see what feels good to you. Even if you don't find the deck, you'll know like what art styles you like, what art styles you don't, et cetera, from doing that. And then you can have an easier time maybe finding something online. You know, I, I am a queer reader and I'm known primarily for my writing from that perspective. Um, and some of the decks I use are very traditional and very old fashioned. And it really is a matter of just what connects you or what you connect to, I should say. Um, and what you feel like you could do a good job with, what you feel like you could read with, um, from there in order to have sort of a very 2019 understanding of the cards, especially if you did pick up a more traditional deck, I would pick up some more modern books. Like, I'm not going to just plug my own book, but there's a few others. There's also Modern Tarot by Michelle T. And then there's one called 78 Degrees of Wisdom by Rachel Pollack. That is very traditional. Um, but her book is very classic in a way that I think the tarot sort of aimed for but missed a little um, when it first started being mass-produced. Um, so those are sort of the some of the books I would suggest. In terms of learning to read in ways that are inclusive beyond the studying we just talked about, um, I think take each card and think about what you know about the card, but look at it and really try to connect with each card individually. Do some what is called tarot journaling where you take notes about how it shows up throughout your day or not. Um, and try to find the personal connection, you know, tarot, divination, any sort of psychic ability. It's very similar to art in some of the ways we brought up, but it's also similar to art in that it should be personal and you should have your own point of point of view and your own perspective on it. So the biggest tip is just taking the time and having the patience to do the internal searching and coming up with those stories and that point of view that are going to help you learn the card better. 
What do you want readers to take away from the book? They buy it, they read it. What do you want them to walk away with? I want them to walk away feeling like they know how to address some really hard and tough stuff that maybe they didn't before um, when they're doing readings. And also, um, I want them to take away that, like, there's not one way to read tarot. There's not one way to look at a tarot card that it really is about bringing in your own intuition and your own experiences, your own, like, mundane experiences that you've had um, and sort of blending that all up in, like, the blender that is our brain. Um, and so learning that there are different styles and different methods, I think, is a really important takeaway from the book. Where can people get a hold of the book? Anywhere you buy books, they can order it for you. Um, it is on Amazon. It is on IndieBound. It is at barnesandnoble.com. It is on Wiser's own website, if anyone follows them. Um, and then, you know, I've seen it in regular bookstores. I've seen it at a cult shop. Um, I hope that it is also showing up at, like, LGBTQ plus stores that also carry books. Um, and I think that it probably is. I just haven't. We don't have a great one of those in the city um, where I live. So, um, yeah, those are – and if they don't have it, they can order it for you, and that actually helps me a lot because if people order it at the register, the bookstore says, oh, hey, maybe we should carry this book, um, which obviously having the visibility of having it in the store is helpful. Um, so even if they don't have it, ask them to order it. If you don't want to go through all of that, just – Amazon is fine. It's right there. Uh, so you also do readings and stuff for people. If someone was interested in pursuing that with you, how would they do that? So if you live in uh, the Twin Cities in Minnesota or nearby, I read at the Eye of Horus Metaphysical twice a week, um, Sunday and Wednesday. And I'm going to start at the Future, um, which is a newer metaphysical shop that's expanding in late June. Otherwise, I don't have any phone or Skype offerings, um, unfortunately, but I do have email readings, and you would just go to my website to grab those, Cassandra-Snow.com. Great. Well, thank you for spending the time with us tonight, uh, Cassandra. Uh, we appreciate you uh, helping us understand uh, this particular angle to this, because it's kind of a new discussion. I don't think we've had this before. Well, great. I'm glad to be here, and uh this was fun. Thank you so much for having me. Once again, thank you to Cassandra Snow for being with us. Again, her website is her name with a dash in the middle, Cassandra-Snow.com. And her book is called Queering the Tarot, and it's available on Amazon. Plus, if you're watching the, the YouTube stream, you can find it in the description uh, later on. Anyway, so in our next hour, we're going to be bringing in Chris James. Chris is an author and a paranormal researcher. He's also written a book. His book is called Laredo Paranormal Research Society and outlines a number of their paranormal investigations and cases that he's been on. He talks about uh, experiences he's had, experiences he's had and his techniques in investigating and all that. So we will be talking about ghosts in the second hour of the program. We will also take your phone calls at 844-687-7669. In the meantime, visit the Beyond Reality Radio webpage to find our list of affiliate radio stations plus some other great information. It's very simple. It's just beyondrealityradio.com. You can also find Beyond Reality Radio on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook. Follow me on Facebook at JV Johnson and follow me on YouTube. Also, 
at JV Johnson. Just go to youtube.com, give it a search. You'll find hundreds of programs there, back shows. Plus, we stream the show live every night in case you cannot find the show on a radio station near you. In the second hour of our program, we'll be talking about ghosts and paranormal investigations, a topic that's very dear to this program's heart. Chris James will be our guest. He's an author and a paranormal researcher. His book is called Laredo Paranormal Research Society. He also has a podcast and a YouTube show called Strange Things with Chris James. You can find them on the um, Apple Podcast Network and on YouTube as well. We'll bring uh, Chris into the program in just a little bit. Don't forget, tomorrow night is a best of show as every Friday is. And then Monday night, we've got Claire Waters joining us. Claire is an author, a holistic wellness coach, and she's also the mother to two psychic medium children. She's written a book about that experience called Raising Faith, and that's what we'll be talking about, what it's like to raise two children with psychic mediumship abilities. And then in Tuesday's program. Marilyn Schlitz will be with us. Marilyn is a consciousness researcher, and we'll talk about the mysteries of consciousness and where science and spirit meet. And I have to move ahead to Wednesday because this is going to be very, very exciting. Wednesday will be another show where we have two guests, and this is a personal favorite of mine because in the first hour of the show, we will have Bruce Campbell. Now, when I say that name, if you're not a horror film fan, you might not know what I'm talking about. Bruce Campbell has starred in many, many uh, horror movies, including Evil Dead, the original one. And he was on a, was it Showtime? I don't don't remember uh, where the program was. Ash versus the Evil Dead was a series uh, on not long ago. I know it's been canceled, but It was on for a couple seasons, and he was the star of that. Plus, he's just done so many other films. Uh, But he's got a reboot happening of Ripley's Believe It or Not on television. He's going to be the host of it. So we're going to be talking with him in the first hour. I was on Stars, according to Orion. We're going to be talking to him in the first hour on Wednesday. And then in the second hour, Sanasta Kalucci, who is a cult survivor and author of a book called Better Than a Turkish Prison, What I Learned from Life in a Religious Cult. We'll discuss what her life was like as a member of the 12 tribes. That is the second hour of Wednesday's program. So some great stuff coming up next week. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, we've got Scaricon coming up at the end of next week. I will remind you, too, that Bruce the Shark Markison will be in for me on a week from tonight. Next Thursday, he'll be filling in. And then he'll be also uh, that following Monday doing the show. And uh, I'll be at Scaricon, by the way. And if you have any interest in having the best weekend of your life, <laughs> go to Scaricon.com. Check it out. It's coming up very, very quickly. And it's going to be a terrific weekend of celebrities, film screenings, panel discussions, parties, great vendors, and a whole lot more. Scaricon.com. And our guest for the second hour of the program is Chris James. Chris is an author, a paranormal researcher. He's got a book out called Laredo Paranormal Research Society. Plus, he does a podcast, has a YouTube stream. Chris, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, sir. Appreciate being on your show. So uh, let's start with getting a little bit more background on you. How long have you been interested or maybe even fascinated with uh, the paranormal? Since as far back as I can remember, when I was in uh, school, I'd always go to the library and look for the the books on strange things, uh, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, anything out of the ordinary, which gave me a bit of a reputation with the rest of the kids. 
This was back when we didn't have the cool TV shows to watch, and I think it was even long before sightings had even come out, or In Search Of. Before In Search Of? Yes. Wow. Because, uh, are we talking about the original In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy? Leonard Nimoy. Wow, because that was in the early 70s. Oh, okay. Um, so you went, you, I mean, back then, and I, I'm, a, I'm a, a product of that era as well, uh, we didn't have many choices. If we were interested no. in learning more about this, uh, you, you really couldn't find much on television, and it really had to rely on, well, there was no internet, you had to rely on the library books that you could find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was fortunate in that we did have a fairly expansive library where you could find certain books, uh, it was just being able to find them because they were always like hidden away in some dark, dusty shelf somewhere. And <laughs> if you ask the librarian, they'd of course give you that weird look, like, uh, "What do you want to look up something about the Loch Ness monster or vampires or werewolves?" Or instead of just saying, "Oh, it's over there in the far corner," it was like, "Why do you want to know?" Yeah, I was growing up back then. So were you mostly interested in ghosts at the time, or was it any kind of monsters anything. or anything like that? Anything out of the ordinary, yeah. because there was certain things going on, uh, you know, like you'd hear things at night, or you'd, you'd hear people talking about, oh, they saw UFOs, or somebody saw a ghost, and you, being curious, I would ask. I'd ask my mother, I'd ask school teachers, I'd ask people I knew, hey, what's this, uh, people talking about seeing UFOs? And of course, it was always like, oh, those people are all crazy. But then I knew some people that had seen UFOs, and they didn't seem crazy to me, so that would spark an interest. Uh, people would say that they'd seen a ghost, and then somebody else would say, oh, that person's just crazy, and it's like, well, wait a minute, I know this person, and they don't seem to be crazy to me. So who's who's telling the tale here? Is it the person that saw the ghost, or is it the person saying the person was crazy? <laughs> and it just the more this happened, the more it sparked my interest. So does the Laredo Paranormal Research Society, which is also the name of your book, does it focus on ghost hunting specifically, or do you look at anything that might be considered paranormal, UFOs, cryptids, anything? They started out, they were just ghosts, and that's all that they were interested in. And then one night, Ishmael, the founder of the group, saw a star up in the sky, and he couldn't identify it. He's an amateur astronomer. In fact, he has the biggest telescope in Laredo. It's named Hercules. And he saw this star, and it was really standing out. His daughter had pointed it out to him. And he even went and got a star chart, and he's looking at the chart, and he's looking at the star, trying to figure out it was, and it disappeared. And it fascinated him, like, what was that that I was just looking at that was there for quite a few minutes, and now it's gone? And in his effort to try and figure this out, well, it it led to him looking into UFOs as well. And from there, they've just kind of branched out into anything uh, people would consider paranormal, anything unusual, Bigfoot, uh, any kind of uh, unusual item. And have you done that personally as well? Have you investigated all those various things? I've been in several ghost hunts. I've looked at a lot of UFO investigations. Don't get a lot of Bigfoot activity because where we live down here on the border, there's not a whole lot of uh, that sort of thing. 
Uh, most of that, you know, you, you find the, the tall trees and the forests and the woods, whereas here in Laredo we have mesquite, which are like big bushes. However, we have had a few reports of Bigfoot here in the vicinity, which that just leads me to believe that perhaps this isn't a flesh-and-blood creature, but something else. Well, that's just, it. Uh, yeah, that's interesting because last night, was it last night we had um, Eric Altman on or was it the night before? <laughs> I'm, I'm keep losing I track. I think it was last night because I was listening to that show and yeah. I was surprised when you mentioned my name. I was like, holy cow, that's... Yeah, we do that. We do that. <laughs> we we mention who we've got coming up on the show. Um, but Eric, I had asked Eric that specific question and Eric has been uh, researching Bigfoot for a very long time and I asked him if he believed that uh, Bigfoot was a flesh-and-blood creature or an interdimensional creature or an alien-related creature or, you know, something mm-hmm. non-traditional. And he, he still falls on the side that he thinks it's flesh-and-blood. Where the people that I've talked to have had their sightings, if Bigfoot was a flesh-and-blood creature, how could it have gotten to these locations because there's no trees for it to, to skulk behind? Yeah. It would have to, like, almost appear and disappear. For example, uh, Lake Alice, which is just north of Alice, Texas, it's surrounded with trees, but then the area around that is all cornfields, or not cornfields, just fields, uh, various crops, and it's wide open. And there would be no place for a Bigfoot-type creature to move without being seen by people unless he only traveled in the middle of the night when it was no full moon or anything. Right, interesting. Uh, And yet, the Alice police have received several reports of a Bigfoot-type creature in and around the lake. And one of our investigators, a guy named Joe, was driving back from Corpus. He was halfway between Freer and Laredo, which that's, once again, it's all ranching area, cattle, uh, hardly any trees. And he said he saw what looked like a Bigfoot standing on the side of the highway. And it surprised him. You know, he's an investigator, so he slammed on the brakes, and he went back to see if he could get a better look. And he said he was suddenly overcome with this horrible feeling of intense dread, as if, hmm. like, the end of the world had arrived. And he almost couldn't. It was like white-knuckling the steering wheel as he went by the, where he'd seen the thing. He got down the road a ways, and then he realizes, I'm going to have to turn around and drive back through that same area. And he was almost too afraid to continue down the highway. And I've heard this from other people where they've had a Bigfoot sighting and they've had this overpowering dread that they couldn't identify. How, how, um, how clear were these sightings? Uh, particularly the story you just told us about Joe, how good of a look did he get at that creature? He was going by and he saw a couple of deer standing on the side of the road. And you don't want to go speeding past these suckers because they'll step out in front of you. So he kind of backed off the, the gas a little. And he's looking at the deer and that's when he saw this creature standing behind him like it was sneaking up on him. And he got a good enough uh, look at it. He was able to draw fairly decent picture of what he'd seen and he was able to identify how tall it was based on the height of the barbed wire fence and or it was a fairly good 
good sighting. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious because that um, description of having a sense of dread has often accompanied uh, dogman sightings. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't hear that very often when people talk about Bigfoot sightings. Uh, there are other characteristics, but that sense of overwhelming dread has mm-hmm. often accompanied dogman sightings. So that's why I'm curious. I'm wondering if, if, uh, if he was had a good enough look at this creature to distinguish whether it was a dogman versus a Bigfoot. That could be a possibility because he didn't see, like, the legs or anything. And he never said whether or not he could see a muzzle. But what he described was just this really tall, hair-covered creature. But from what I've heard, most of the dogmen, they tend to be about, what, six, seven feet tall. And I believe he said this thing was a bit taller than that. Uh, trying to look for it in the book here. But, uh, yeah, he's, well, he said it was about seven feet tall, so I guess that would yeah, it'd be about the dog man size as yeah. well. Yeah, so, so the book itself actually has uh, that particular story in it yep. as well, so it's more than just ghosts. It's, it covers a bunch of different things. Like I said, they, they started out, it was just ghosts. Then Ishmael had his UFO encounter, and so they started looking into UFOs, and then other people would come forward and they'd say, hey, I've had this other experience, would you mind looking into it? And so now it's if it's unusual, if it's paranormal, the group will look into it. When did uh, LPRS, Laredo Paranormal Research Society, form? The, the very first case, case number one, was December 12th in 2002. Oh, wow. And what had happened was our local police department SWAT team would practice inside an old hospital. Uh, lots of rooms, lots of hallways, lots of places to run up and down uh, without accidentally scaring the public. And they kept encountering something inside the building. And there's nothing worse than a bunch of scared cops. It's like you know, they, they don't get scared normally. It's like soldiers. You're not supposed to get scared. It's not normal. Well, the, the officers kept saying, there's something wrong here. There's something creepy. There's something weird. So the sergeant in charge of the unit decided he would try to get someone to look into it. And the only person he could think of to ask was Ishmael because they had met at several law enforcement conferences. So Ishmael was like, ah, we don't do that sort of thing. It's, it's not our, our bag. This is long before ghost hunters and things like that had come out on TV. But the sergeant was very persuasive. And he also agreed that he would go along just to you know, keep an eye on things. So the LPRS group, they got a bunch of fellow like-minded investigators together, a lot of guys in law enforcement, a lot of guys in various occupations. They went in with cameras and tape recorders, and they kind of spent the night inside this abandoned hospital. And they caught some very... Uh, interesting evidence that uh, showed that there was something in that building other than the people that were going in and out. Uh, one of the investigators, well, can't really call them investigators because they weren't investigators yet, but one of the guys in the group with a cheap camera just walking around clicking pictures just in every direction, and he caught what looked like an orb, but it was a green sphere that dropped down from the ceiling and then shot down the hallway. And this was in one photograph, one click of the camera. Wow. And the images 
spectacular to look at because it, you can see the trail that this thing had left as it went down the hallway. Chris, I want to talk about the ghost hunting part of your experiences in the book here. Um, uh-huh. And I want to talk about the types of buildings that might be more prone to hauntings. Is there a specific type of building that you think is more prone to being haunted? I used to always think that it had to be some old abandoned building, but we did an investigation at the sports arena, which is, at the time, it was only a few years old, and we had some experiences there, uh, bizarre things that could not be explained. Uh, People would see a woman walking into the ladies' room on the second tier, the the cleaning staff. They're like, oh, who's that woman just went into the bathroom? Then they'd hear the water running. They'd go in and look, and there'd be nobody there. And then the, the one of the people in charge of the arena runs up and down the stairs between uh, working in her office just to get a little exercise, and she would hear somebody running up behind her when she was standing still, you'd hear the footsteps coming up the stairs and she would look and there'd be nobody there. And all the security folks that work there all have said that they have seen like a little kid in this one area of the building. But when they go to, to check, there's nobody there. And this is, this is all happening in the middle of the night when there shouldn't be anybody hanging out inside an arena. So it could be any kind of building really. So the building type doesn't really matter. So what does matter? Is it uh, something to do with the ground beneath the building? Or is it something to do where, with uh, where certain people might be hanging out themselves, attracts the spirits of somebody they might know? What is it? That I have no idea. I wished I could put a definitive answer to it. But then it would kind of make predicting a ghostly presence almost scientific. You could say, okay, this building is going to have a ghost in it because of X, Y, and Z, and then wouldn't that just kind of take all the fun out of it? Yeah, I guess it would. Um, You know, one of the things that tends to get a lot of attention uh, are old, uh, specifically psychiatric hospitals or Mm. asylums, you know, these these places where in many cases uh, the folks that were living there weren't there voluntarily, um, Uh even prisons. uh, Do you think there's more energy in a spiritual sense in a place like that that might fuel hauntings than maybe you know just a factory down the road oh yes and the surprising thing about a lot of the hauntings that take place in a jail or a prison you expect it to be the the inmates but i have heard of the the people there actually encountering some of the guards and uh who have passed on and they've encountered their spirit in the building which almost seems ridiculous because, you know, here's the guard. He goes home at night. He retires. He passes away. And the next thing you know, his spirit's hanging out in a prison somewhere or jail. And it's it's almost counterintelligent that uh, a guard would wind up haunting a jail. But as far as the inmates go, they are, I can understand that because it's got to be the most negative place on the planet. Uh, I would do just about anything at work to avoid having to do a shakedown because just it's an unpleasant experience. 
You know, often we hear that uh, hauntings occur because somebody is very affectionate about a place. You know, they, mm-hmm. they want to come back to their home and therefore they do as a spirit and they stay there. Um, we often hear that places like Battlefield, specifically Gettysburg, mm-hmm. um, there's so much tragedy and so much emotion in the blood that was spilled on that land that that generates fuel for hauntings. Um, we, you know, we, we hear things like what you just said, you know, talking about prisons and the way the inmates are uh, treated and the way they feel and why they might be tied there in the afterlife. What do you think is the most common or maybe most in, influential factor in creating a haunting based on the things we just talked about? Super strong emotions. Uh, not just like somebody really likes something, really dislikes something, but it's almost like a strong hatred or a, a extreme fear or something along those lines. There's something that goes above normal emotions, and the more of it, it seems, the more prevalent you get these encounters. The surprising thing is that the battlefields of World War One aren't as haunted as you would expect them to be from what I've read. Mm-hmm. Uh, You'd almost expect there to be ghosts from one end of the the battlefield to the other, and yet the people that do go there to uh, Epers and those various locations, they don't have the strong spiritual presence like what we find at Gettysburg. That's interesting. Uh, World War One, for those who aren't uh, necessarily students of that, was a very, very uh, bloody war, specifically because uh, the technology to kill people had advanced faster than the technology Uh to protect them. And, uh, you know, we had these massive armies going at each other with weapons, the machine guns specifically, that could just mow them down, or chemical weapons, mustard gas, Uh uh, unbelievable tragedy in World War I. So that's that's very surprising to me. Yet... In the Civil War, there it was a bit similar uh, in the sense that there was a lot of carnage. You had armies lined up facing each other, shooting muskets into each other's lines, uh, and there was incredible carnage there. And we know uh, that many, many people, many people listening to this program, many people that have become, uh, whether it's professional or amateur ghost hunters, got their start and their first experience at Gettysburg. It's that powerful. So that's an interesting contrast. Yeah, there's a lot of people who died in World War One that their bodies were never even found. That's right. Because of the, the huge shells that they're lobbing at each other. That's exactly and right. So the, the, the ground in and around these battlefields is pretty much scattered with body parts. Yeah, under and the ground. And, I, I've actually yet, I've actually visited the Verdun battlefield in France, and it, it looks like the surface of the moon, or at least how I would imagine the surface of the moon looks like. Yeah, there's some vegetation on it, but it's it's cratered. The whole yes. the whole you know for miles in every direction is just craters because of the amount of artillery shells that were lobbed at each side during that uh, battle. And I think a million men died over uh-huh. the course of the Battle of Verdun. Talk about. Uh, tragedy and death, uh, and you're absolutely right. Many of them were never found. Mm-hmm. It was a an interesting, scary, and very tragic history. And unfortunately, a lot of people they 
they don't they don't have the faintest idea what people are talking about when they mention things like that. It's it's so far in the past that it, they don't think that it affects them. When in actuality, all these things from the past like that affect everybody because it changes the course of the planet. Like at the end of World War One, the world was a different place. Uh, it wasn't all this happy, love your neighbor like it was before then. Yeah. And people had no idea that such horrible, nasty things could actually be done. And, you know, it was a crime that such a horrible thing had happened. And there was one more component to World War One that I think is very remarkable, and that's that um, medical technology had progressed to the point where in, in previous wars, a lot of the injuries would have killed people. Mm-hmm. And uh, many men came home disfigured uh, with as amputees or you know whatever burned by mustard gas or just you know uh, dis- disfigured because of artillery shells, whatever it happened to be. And there was a lot of difficulty for people to see those war veterans in that shape. Um, mm-hmm. and in fact, many people talk about when we, we talk about uh, horror movies a lot in, in the work I do, and many people attribute to the beginning of the acceptance of horror films based on what people saw when these men returned home from World War I in the, in the shape that they were in. It's, there's so many things about that. We're not here to talk history in that yeah. respect, but man, that is a fascinating topic. When you, when you uh, pick buildings out for investigation, do you um, rely on the history more than you lie on, rely on the reports? What is the motivator to actually go check out uh, a specific location for a haunting? Most of the time, it's a report. Somebody has had an experience. Somebody has seen something. Uh, we did have, we do get cases on occasion where it's a family that is having problems with something. We call this one, it's, it's the demon house, where this woman called Ishmael, and she says, hey, could you come check out my house? We're having some strange experiences here. And he's like, okay, what do you have? What do you... We're seeing shadows at night. We smell rotten eggs, and people are getting scratched. And as soon as he heard this, it's like, okay, you know, everybody that wants to go to a demon investigation show up. Of course, I don't go to these things because I don't trust myself not to bring something home. They investigated the house, and after they had started the investigation, they discovered later when doing the historical checks that the house had actually been built by a guy from Germany during World War II, and he was a spy working for the Nazi government. Of course, his passport said he was Swiss. Uh, At the time, the city of Laredo was full of people that were supposedly Swiss, but they all had kind of a German accent. But, well, if they get the passport, what can you do? And just about the time the FBI started looking into the guy at the demon house, he disappeared. He packed his bags and ran from Mexico. And they discovered that the house had a basement. And one of the still photographs that had a camera that was uh, motion-activated, you could see a shadow. It's about six feet tall. It's in the kitchen. Then the next image, it's about five feet tall, and it's a little farther along the floor. Then it's four, three, two, like it's going down the stairs into a basement. Well, they tried to get into the basement, but the thing has been filled with cement. 
They couldn't access the basement. They brought in the uh, the bishop from the church. They blessed the house. They did the whole nine yards. They put crosses all around under the floor. And the family said that they're still seeing shadows at night, but they haven't had any problems with bad smells or anybody getting scratched again. So once in a while we'll get a call like that, and it's like they go in to help the family as opposed to just to do the research. You may have just answered that question, uh, but are there any types of activity that you avoid? <laughs> yeah, demons. Uh, I don't trust myself not to say the wrong thing or to do the wrong thing. The next thing I know, I've got something at the house. And my wife always tells me don't bring anything home. So I always <laughs> avoid anything uh, dangerous like that. How often do you get calls or does the group get calls to handle uh, a demonic case? It's, it's fairly rare. They've had three or four uh, really interesting ones. I've read the reports so I could write the book, but I don't go on those things. We also get a call once in a while from someone, for example, the Hillside Dollhouse. This woman wanted the group to come to her house and document the fact that her dolls were moving around at night by themselves. And Ishmael wanted to know, well, is there a problem? Are they scaring you? you No, she said she didn't want anything done as far as blessing the house or stopping the, the dolls from moving about. She just wanted them to document it so that she could, I think, prove to herself that she wasn't crazy. So they set up cameras in all the rooms, and this house is full of dolls. It's like every room in the house has hundreds of dolls. There's old antiques, and there are some that are brand new. Some are made out of plastic, and some are porcelain. And they set cameras throughout the house uh, anywhere where they felt uneasy, like when you go into the room and the hair on your arm stands up, they would set a camera in there. And they actually caught one of the dolls blinking. Oh, wow. And Ishmael managed to get his hands on this doll. He, uh, he borrowed it for a ghost presentation he was doing. And so he took the doll home, but he didn't want to take it in the house. It was like, eh, this is a little creepy. So he left it out in his truck the first couple of nights. Then he decided he would put it in the closet because uh, he didn't want to be driving back and forth to work with a doll on his truck. The the other guys at the jail might see it. He put it in the closet, and then later he couldn't find the thing. He had to search the whole house trying to find the doll. His wife, she said she didn't touch it. He found the doll, took it to a ghost uh, presentation, put it back in the closet. A couple of days later, he couldn't find the doll again. He now keeps it locked in a plastic uh, box with a, a lock on it. Hoping that the thing will Jeez, yeah. <laughs> uh, move around the house at night. Yeah, well, there's nothing creepier than a doll that moves around on its own. I'll tell you that right now. I saw that Twilight Zone. Yeah. So it was the, the Night Gallery episode mm -hmm. about the doll from India, and I don't like dolls. Dolls, and uh, it's kind of the same thing, but uh, ventriloquist, ventriloquist oh. dummies. Um, I don't know if you remember the movie Magic with uh, yes. 
yeah. Anthony Hopkins. And, and, and uh, Anne Margaret, uh, that was a good one as well. Uh, very, very creepy stuff. You know, we uh, we burned up our time pretty quickly here. We've just got a couple minutes left. Uh, where, yeah, where can people get the book? It's available at Amazon.com. They can get it in either Kindle or softcover. Uh, I don't have it in bookstores, but you can order it. You can go into a bookstore and say you'd like to order a copy, and they can they can get it that way. Uh, I'm self-published because I didn't want somebody else having control over my book. And I've heard from too many people that said they wrote a book and they sent it off to the editors, and the editors said, we don't like this and we don't like that, so we're going to cut it out. So I just decided to have control over it myself. So if you do want a copy, you can get it at a bookstore or at Amazon. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing some of these experiences with us. Good luck with the book, and uh, hope, hope to have you back on the show at some point. Appreciate y'all having me on. Don't forget, tomorrow night is a best of program on the show, and then Monday we'll be back with Claire Waters. What do you think about it, Orion? You think um, you think there's any particular building that is more prone to hauntings than any other? Uh, I mean, I, I I think if it's old and creepy, you certainly are um, I, tuned in more. Yeah, I think you're tuned in more. Plus, you're plus you're predisposed to feel something maybe but i liked your your uh idea that maybe it was the ground underneath it right like like the end of uh poltergeist or something like that who knows you think all these all these places are built on indian burial burial grounds is that what you're saying who knows <laughs> it's possible right or you know some sort of ley line energy field who knows yeah all right, so um, like I said, we've got some great stuff coming up next week. In addition to Claire Waters, we've got Marilyn, and this is going to be very, very careful. To, I have to be very cautious when I say her name. Marilyn Schlitz, uh, who's a consciousness researcher, will be discussing the mysteries of consciousness and where science and spirit meet. That's going to be an interesting topic. So, uh, And then, of course, Wednesday is going to be a, a particularly satisfying program for myself. Bruce Campbell, B-movie legend. Horror film legend will be on to talk about his reboot of the Ripley's Believe It or Not. How long has Ripley's Believe It or Not been not been a program? It's been a while, right? I remember in and the eighties. Was it Robert Stack that that narrated right. it before right. or something? Yeah, believe it. Yeah, or not. <laughs> that's right. All right, so that's going to do it for tonight. Everybody have a great night. Tomorrow's the best of. We will see you live again on Monday night. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Entercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.Taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at J.V.J. Paranormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.